Uh, up to this point, just to give a very brief reminder to you, uh, last week we got into chapter 1, so the first week we just covered some basic facts about the Acts of the Apostles, um, including author, purpose, um, some unique things about the book of Acts, things we need to be mindful of. Last week we jumped into chapter 1, and as is mentioned at the very beginning, what we tried to do last week was show an additional proof that Luke was the author by laying out the last 10 verses of the book of Luke, the first 11 verses of the book of Acts, and we see a very clear overlap. The book of Acts gives us a little more detail than the book of Luke does, but the events are largely the same. And uh, we found out there that, of course, Jesus dies. He's in the grave for three days, so that's three days. He spends 40 days teaching them things pertaining to the kingdom of God. That's 43 days. We know that the day of Pentecost, it's going to happen in chapter 2, happens on day 50. So we know that we're at about a week in between here where these events are transpiring after His ascension. Last week we talked about His ascension and we concluded with the apostles looking up into heaven. Angels appearing unto them and saying, you need to get to work. And uh, so that's kind of where we left off. And now we're going to begin reading in verse 12 through verse 26. And not a whole lot of, I think, confusion surrounding these verses. I think the events are going to be extremely clear. Uh, But we're going to kind of use some of this clarity and being able to go through this quickly to set us up for later in the book answering questions that are going to arise. And particularly tonight, we're going to talk about the office of the apostles. Because this is about replacing one of the apostles. So if you remember, and we'll get into Judas dies, they're going to replace him with a man. And um, as simple of a question as it sounds to be, why don't we have apostles today? We can scoff at that question, but it, you may not know the answer to that, right? And really got to search out, what was an apostle? Supposedly on the way to Africa, Kathleen and I met an apostle, right? On our plane, he was going there to do mission work, and he was treated like an apostle by a lot of people on the plane, too, it seemed like. Um, and so we'll talk about uh, the office of an apostle, and what appears to be in Scripture is the explicit requirements to be an apostle, and I think those requirements will show us why that there are not apostles around today. And then we'll kind of see a pattern in that office that arises as well. And so if you'll look on your outline on page 4, the bottom of page 4, or in the book of Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 12 is where we'll begin. It says this, Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath's day journey. So remember, this is about three quarters of a mile. And when they are come in, they went up into an upper room, where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon Zelotus, and Judas the brother of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brethren. And in those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, The number of names together were about 120. Men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost spoke by the mouth, excuse me, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas, which was guide to them that took Jesus. For he was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity, and following headlong, he burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. 
and it was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem, insomuch as that field is called in their proper tongue, Ekladama, that is to say, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his habitation be desolate, and let no man dwell therein, and his bishopric let another take. Wherefore of these men which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John unto that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. And they appointed two, Joseph called Barsabas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whether of these two thou hast chosen." that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship, from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they gave forth their lots, and the lot fell upon Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. All right, so we've already covered the first bullet point that we have there, just about where the location was. Uh, but we'll point out something in the second bullet point here. So think about who's gathering. So we're up in an upper room. We have ten apostles up to this point that are going to be present here. Jesus' family. Now, to make a little point, again, that's just a side note here. If you look at verse 14, where it lays us out, the apostles, the women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brethren. So this kind of, again, as we did in the Gospel of John, knocks at the Catholic notion that Mary was a virgin for her entire life. This identifies his brothers. Are up there too, right? So... Again, that's something that if you've ever been confronted with Catholics, they seem to, well, they don't seem, they do esteem Mary a little too high and attribute things that are just simply not true, this being one proof of that. Um, so they're there in the upper room, and there's 120 who have gathered. And so if we consider for a moment that Jesus traveled all through this region, he healed likely thousands of people. I mean, he'd go into a town full of sickness, leave that town, people are fully healed. So I think the number is easy to estimate, at least on the bottom side, there's probably in the thousands of people that he healed, that he changed the lives of in Judea and surrounding Jerusalem. And when it comes down to the followers after his resurrection, we're down to 120. I hope in some ways at times that is can be an encouragement to us, right? Because if Jesus finishes his ministry doing, excelling far what we, we can do, and at the very end of it, the devout followers only come to 120 at this point, not saying there probably aren't some that are still scattered at a distance, but in that, I mean, God came to earth, and so few people recognize him that there's only 120 after he leaves. And so I don't think that necessarily should, if we're not being, if we're not trying to fulfill the commission with the zeal God has instructed us to, we don't need to take false assurance in small numbers, right? But if we are trying to seek the salvation of the world, and we're trying to teach the world, disciple them after they've been saved... And many fall away, and many are distracted, and many won't be sincere followers. There's a type here. Is the, is the servant above his Lord, as Jesus said. That there's a common theme. I found in my own life, when you evangelize the people and you get them to stick for a while, most of the time, and, I, and I'm open to hearing your thoughts about this, whether this is a... Um, 
a normative that we find throughout history, or is this unique to our time in some sense? Or on this continuum, because I think we can go back 100 years at this very church, 150 years, and people are going out to the community and people are sticking. I think it was Brother Wheeler, Brad Wheeler told me one time that at one time, and I can't remember what year it was, there's approximately 20,000 people that lived in Bowling Green and 500 of them were a member at Old Union. Wow. That's kind of explained to me why it was when I went out into the community and I'd say Old Union, almost everybody knew of Old Union. One in 40 people were members at Old Union, I think it was around 80 years ago. That may be off on that number. I think it was about that distance. So um, what lesson can we learn by the fact, if any, that there's only 120 left after Jesus' ministry is said and done? What comes to your mind? Anything? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, we see there, even if we just said it was equal percents, right? Four types of ground, one type of good ground, 25% of the seed sown. I would love for that to be our harvest, <laughs> right? 25% of the seed sown ended up yielding fruits 60, 80, and 100 fold. Definitely a parable that uh, relates to this. Somebody else have a thought? Any lesson we can learn by only 120 being left after the ministry of Jesus is over? You're saying what winnows people out is not the initial, it's the substance applying the sub building on the rock. Right? I a hundred percent agree with that because I think they even say there in John six, many turn back for this was a hard saying. Because what Jesus was saying is, I have to be your what you eat and drink. Consume you. Many fell away. And it explains also the rise of shallow Christianity in America today. Right? Go just as far enough to conscience ease. Right? And I think we have to be careful because you can just cut the edges off of truth and not even deceive people. Just cut the sharpness off the reality. Are you getting what I'm saying here? So you're not lying to people. You're just not telling them the full truth. Or confronting what I see a temptation of mine as a minister is when the Lord gives you a sermon to preach and you know that it's going to hurt people and they can think ulterior motives exist. And so you just kind of forget to mention the specific sins. Like, everybody's against sin when you speak of it generally. But when you get into specific sin, that's where suddenly it's a different, it, it, it feels different. And I, I 100% agree. It, it seems like, 
Remember, these people had to endure the scorn of the reputation of Jesus. Jesus is not popular at this moment. His way is not popular at this moment. Many are going away seemingly for that. Somebody else have a thought. Absolutely. So this is just following. I mean, Jesus has been put to death in so much that Peter the Apostle, his closest follower, would not go with him. So there's fear that is throughout this movement has not taken hold yet. And so certainly I would agree there's a lot of fear that exists here. Anybody else? All right, so let's ask this question before we look to the actual text here. How did Judas die according to the Gospels? What did he do to die according to the Gospels? All right, so we know he hung himself. So this is another thing that I just have a hard time, and I'm not an expert on hanging yourself, all right? But something I have a hard time understanding because this kind of gives us a different perspective of what happened when he dies, and certainly if you can enlighten me, I'd be happy to understand it. If you look at verse 18, it describes a different part of what happens when he, when he died. Now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity. So we know that's the 30 pieces of silver is what the reward of iniquity was. And falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. So, I mean, that's how I understand it. So it, as he is falling, hanging himself, is it the force? Again, I'm not understanding kind of how this happened. And his innards, his middle, just gushed out. Am I reading that right? Anybody help me here? (laughs) Is this how you understand it? Go ahead. Maybe that's why. Maybe that's why yeah. they did it because of Judas. Hmm. 
John Gale says that he speculates that he's wondering if it's possible that he was snatched up by Satan who was in him and Satan thrust him to the ground and ruptured his body in coming out of him. Hmm. Now, I can't speak to this, but that's just what John Gale said. Hmm. We know John. We know that Satan entered him because there's a distinct scripture in John. We talked about. I think it was 19. I think that's what it was. Where now Satan entered into the heart of Judas is what it said. So I always understand that metaphysically, not physically. So that's a different um, take on it. Anybody else? Do you have any? Any? Uh, what would they be? Who's somebody that? I want to say a pallbearer, but that's not the right word. <laughs> What am I trying to say? What's that? Mortician. There you go. Any morticians in here? All right. So um, that gives us an additional account. That's all I was trying to bring out about uh, his death. Um, Let's see here. So then he prefaces what they're about to do with two prophecies that they're trying to fulfill. So the first prophecy is found in Psalm 69.25. So if you look at verse 20, is where it's at. It says this, For it is written in the book of Psalms. So this is Psalm 69.25. Okay, this is where it's referencing. It says, Let his habitation be desolate. That's one psalm. So, and then the second psalm is, Let no man dwell therein, and his bishopric let another take. That's Psalm 109.8. Now one of the things that I'd encourage you to do is... Um, when you get to a portion of Scripture and it quotes from the Old Testament, to understand what this verse means, you kind of have to understand what those verses meant in that time to see the fulfillment. right? Because that's the message they're trying to get out. And so, in Psalm 69.25... David prayed to the Lord that the camp of his enemies and those who, quote, reproached him would be abandoned. This is fulfilled poetically as Judah's estate, the 30 pieces of silver, is used to purchase a desolate place or what would become a cemetery. So that's the first part. Let his habitation be desolate or his estate be desolate. The second part of this text in the book of Acts says, let no man dwell therein, and his bishopric let another take. So his office must be replaced. Or if you go to page 6 on our outline, David prays that a man who was falsely accusing him would be replaced by someone else. So again, notice the similarity here. A man was falsely accusing David, a man that falsely accused Jesus, Judas. And in this particular place, David was just praying in his time, let this man be replaced whatever position he was in. And so this is what Peter is saying. The purpose of that psalm was not only in its own time, but was also meant to reflect a greater reality that would come in Jesus' time. Now this is one of the interesting things about the psalms that kind of causes us to pause. Because if you were to go back to Psalm 69, 20, so let me pause for a moment. If you go to say Psalm 23, everybody knows that psalm. Right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, so forth. It's pretty clear that this has got an exact meaning. David was a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. We can kind of make that direct comparison. If we were to go to Psalm 22, 
This is about the crucifixion of Christ and gives a lot of details about the crucifixion of Christ. So we can see like a very clear. What's always interesting to me about these type of texts is that if you and I were to just go back to Psalm 69 and read through it and we read through verse 25, I would have never made the connection between Jesus and this. That's just me. It seems so vague and directly relative to David's situation. And yet something that seems so vague to us, here Peter the Apostle is saying the reason it was written was for this fulfillment. Which kind of leads me to how much else is there that I'm just not seeing if this perceivably vague text is a direct reference to Jesus and is so significant that in the New Testament, Peter is referencing it and Luke records it. Like, how much else is there? And so, when you hear things like, it's all about all the Old Testament is meant to tell us about Jesus. Like, this to me is an example of just how every minute detail is meant to reflect that. And I just personally would never see that. The same thing with this other part. Like, David's praying, Lord, please, this man is falsely accusing me. Let him be replaced. And that is fulfilled in Judas with Jesus. And that's why David wrote it down in the first place, the ultimate reason. And so I kind of wanted to bring that out just because it, it, it is not the way that I would see it necessarily. I see the clearer ones, but this one is just the one that's deep in the shadows. That's, that's hard to see, at least for me. Somebody have a thought about these two prophecies before we get to the second prophecy here, that, that second one. All right, so they're going to replace Judas. And we're going to kind of ask the question as we're going to answer what it requires to be apostle is, does the office of an apostle still exist in modern times? To me, that's a good question because we have in Ephesians 4, for example, when it's listing, or in Romans, I believe it's chapter 12, it lists the different offices that God gave to the church. And one of them is apostles and prophets, pastors and teachers, evangelists. So we would kind of say, okay, pastor, teacher, evangelist, let's just kind of ignore that it said apostle, prophet there, right? And so we really can't do that for the simple fact of a number of reasons. Number one, there are denominations today that have ordained apostles. There have been times in history, there was a time in early American history where a group of Baptists that we trace our lineage back through, um, they met for an association meeting and they brought this question forward and they all concluded there is still the office of an apostle so that this association, so imagine, who is it, Brother Danny and Brother Brian and myself are going as messengers, right? So we're going to come back from Mount Lebanon and we're going to say, hey, by the way, we've discovered there are offices of the apostle and we've made Brother Brian an apostle while we were there. Right? That's what they did. And they went out for two years, supposedly, as apostles, and then they came back and said, okay, we were wrong. <laughs> There's no such thing as the office of an apostle. So this is kind of where we want to jump into this for just a few minutes. The word apostles derived from the Greek word apostolos. It refers to a delegate, emissary, or ambassador commissioned or sent by Christ with his power of attorney to spread the message of the gospel. There appears to have been three requirements to be an apostle. So, 
The word apostle means to be sent. That's what the actual word means. Sent on behalf of somebody. But you'll notice in this description, apostolos, which just so you know, like many of these words, like to us, the word apostle is a Bible, New Testament Bible word. To these people, apostolos was not a new word. The same thing with the Greek word ekklesia, which we know to be as church. And anytime I say church, you automatically think of a religious component to it. But in Koine Greek at this time, ekklesia does not necessarily have strictly a religious meaning. And so you've got to understand at this time what they're doing is they're taking common words of their time and they're describing an office or an institution that eventually becomes the meaning of that word changes and it is now just the meaning. Ecclesia just means a called out group of Christians. But prior to that, not the case. Are you following me? So that's the same word with the word apostolos. That was a word, it is somebody who is sent on behalf of another. And it was thought that the root word of apostolos was actually used by the Sanhedrin as a legal term to mean exactly what I said there. Somebody who has the power of attorney and stay of another. So if you think of somebody who's older and they've made you power of attorney, you can go sign checks, you can go sign contracts, you can go a number of things. You are their legal representative to do something in their absence. But notice... Even in our modern day, that person must give you direct authority to carry out that office. It's not something that somebody, you know, a friend or a distant family member can say, we're going to make you an authority of this. It is this person personally giving you the power of, of attorney or authority over their responsibilities. And so we see in this concept, or at this time it would have been a new concept, or a new office that is established here, that Jesus established during his ministry, there seems to be three qualifications that emerge through the New Testament of what you must do to be an apostle. And so, you can see just in the text of Acts chapter 1, or that we read across, it says this in verse 21. So they're looking to replace Judas, so they're going to that second prophecy they're trying to fulfill. Verse 21, Wherefore of these men which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John, unto that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. So notice there, here's the qualification. You must have been with the apostles since the ministry of Jesus that began at the baptism of John. So we'd have to flip our fingers all the way back to Matthew 3. Remember, Jesus comes walking up, and he asked John the Baptist to baptize him. We have the whole beginning of his ministry, and these people were followers since then, all the way until the point of somebody who witnessed him after his resurrection. So number one, before they would allow somebody to be an apostle to replace Judas, you have to be somebody who's been a follower of Jesus for the entirety of his ministry up and saw also his resurrection. So that's number one. Number two, we've already said it there really, you must be an eyewitness to the resurrected Jesus. So we're going to find out in the book of Corinthians 
that there were hundreds of people that saw Jesus. But many of those people were not there at the beginning when John baptized him. And then third, what will eventually become the case is that it seems like, because we also find that Paul was an apostle, but he said he was a unique one and that he was an apostle called out of due season. So Paul was very unique and he actually claims himself to be unique. He says, listen, I'm not, I am an apostle because if you remember at the opening of many of his books, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ. And he keeps on giving a description. But he even says of himself, I'm a unique apostle. I was called out of due season. And we find that there are some uniquenesses about Paul in that Jesus appeared to him and instructed him privately out in Arabia. So he didn't get Jesus during his lifetime instructing him, but we do have a, a uniqueness about Paul. And one of the reasons why he's qualified to be an apostle is because Jesus met him out there and essentially trained him out there and was able to have a similar benefit that these apostles were by following him during his lifetime and then the 40 days after his resurrection. Right? So Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, and it's actually supposed to be, you might make a note there, 2 Corinthians 12, 12. It should say, let's see here. Truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. So one of the things that validated these men as apostles is that they were able to perform certain miraculous signs. And that was a verification of their apostleship. It was a way to prove to people that they were apostles. And so, in a brief summary, these apostles had to be commissioned by Jesus. Remember, a power of attorney, somebody directly gave them authority. So Jesus, in his ministry, and right before his ascension, has directly given them the power of attorney to go out in his name and perform deeds and preach a message on his behalf. Their teaching and ministries were direct extensions of the teachings and ministries of Jesus and are considered foundational to the entire institution of the church. So if we look in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, it actually says that, and it kind of gives them this unique position different from anyone else who lived after them. It says this in verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and in the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So if we think of the Lord's church as this institution that is perpetual through all the ages, and we take our church and we trace back the history all the way back to the beginning, we're going to find a set aside or a sent, to use the actual definition of the word, group of people by Jesus himself, that Jesus says, these guys are part of the very foundation of this institution. And I, Jesus, am the chief cornerstone of it. And everybody after that is built upon the doctrines, the teaching, the actions, the ministry of both Jesus and those that he personally appointed to carry on his ministry right after his ascension. 
So there's a uniqueness to the office of an apostle. Now, again, how would you, if, if that office is perpetuated to today, it's certainly in Ephesians 2.20, that would be a confusing text because it seems like it's saying Jesus and the apostles were the foundation, Jesus the chief cornerstone, and then everything since that, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord. It seems like he's speaking of a time and a place back then when the apostles existed and were established versus something that's continuous. And so, I will say we have a, a pattern here, though, in today. So, this is something, this was one of the reasons why I wrote this is because, and asked you to take out the old paper, is because I, I didn't know about this connection until last week. So, for some reason, I began to study the office of a missionary. Came to learn the term missionary is nowhere in the Bible. Obviously, the function of a missionary is. Paul was sent, and Barnabas, and Silas, and John Mark, and all of them. But the word missionary is a word that we use. That's a Latin word that is derived from the Latin word for apostle. So, the word missionary is an extension of the word apostle. So I got to thinking about that. Why, why would, and I think it was Jesuit priests were the first one to use that. They were sent from Rome to stop the Reformation, so they're not the type of missionaries that we would think of today. But why was that, why would they use a derivative of the word apostle to describe what a missionary does? And when I got to thinking about it, it makes perfect sense. If Jesus commissioned the apostles to be a direct extension of his ministry, responsible directly to him, sent out ones, what it means. If we take that same pattern, what is a missionary? They are, um, a missionary is to the church what the apostles were to Jesus. The church sends out, a send out one, a missionary, to go on their behalf, on the church's behalf. Right? So the church is the one, it's the ministry of the church. The commission is given to the world to go to the world, to the church. And the church says, we find you qualified to go out on our behalf with the degree of autonomy. Or in other words, there are times when, especially throughout history, when a missionary goes out, They have to listen to somebody's testimony and baptize them without the consent of the church. Because it would take two years to get on a ship and come back to the church to to get that permission, right? So they were given the authority of the church to go out and proliferate this truth. And so, to me, we have this wonderful pattern that we can look to when we see missionaries that are going out the same structure that Jesus sent out the apostles with is the same structure that we ought to send missionaries at. That ultimately, they're representatives of ours. They're preaching our message. They're responsible to us. But furthermore, we're responsible to them. And what we're going to see in the book of Acts, and the reason why I brought this up is because Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas, are going to take these missionary journeys all throughout 
at this time what was the Roman world, but the ancient Greek world, all around the Mediterranean, and they're going to go to these Gentile places that did not have the gospel, and these people are going to receive the gospel. And then when they get done going on these missionary journeys, Paul and Silas, or Paul and Barnabas, come back, and what do they do? They report to the churches that they were from. And they said, this is what we did. This is what's happening over there. And then what we're going to find is that those churches would then send people from the church out to those mission works to further establish them in the faith and hold them accountable. Right? So I want you to look real quick, and I'm, I'm doing this right now because we have a little extra time in chapter 1, but it's going to, you're going to see this pattern reemerge when we get to the Apostle Paul because he's going to take two missionary journeys, and this is the pattern he's using, which I conveniently feel like is the same pattern that Jesus used to send out the apostles. So look real quick to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 16 through 24. Now, everyone here knows, I think, about the Corinthian church's, what's a good word, indecencies? I don't know. We'll use that word gently, right? The Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians is just full of a bunch of bad people, right? A bunch of sinful people. Paul writes them in 1 Corinthians. It's a very harsh letter. It's a very long letter. Then in 2 Corinthians, we learn very early on that they had repented of their sin and tried to make things right. And Paul begins to teach them about what he wanted to in 1 Corinthians, which was about spiritual things. And that's what he does in the first five chapters of 2 Corinthians here. But then we find out some unique things that, again, I had never noticed until I started jumping a little deeper into this. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we also see what I believe to be an important precedent set about doing mission work. It says this, But thanks be to God, which put the same earnest care into the heart of Titus for you. For indeed, he accepted the exhortation, but being more forward... Of his own accord, he went unto you. Now, I want to read real quick because I think it's a little clearer. I want to read here out of the NASB version, those last verses right there. It says this, But thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he has gone to you of his own accord. So here's what's happened. Paul has made an appeal to a bunch of people and said, The Corinthians need help. Will somebody go and help them? And we can say, yes, they definitely needed help, right? So he sends out this appeal. So I would, I would liken this to what happens every year at the minister school. We have 100 preachers that show up, and it's not an uncommon thing for one or two preachers to stand up and say, there is a desperate need in this place, or there's a wonderful opportunity for the gospel to flourish in this place, but nobody's there. So evidently, Paul had broadcast that message out to them and said, we need help. And then you'll notice, and I think I, I might have said something on the outline, or did I write it to myself? Okay, I have it on the outline. Second to last bullet point on page six. That Titus was not forced to go. And I put in there in parentheses, like Mormons force their missionaries. If you've ever talked to a Mormon, I've had Mormon students, acquaintances, ask them questions. 
And it's kind of a scary thing whenever you get to that ripe age of 18. Because you have no say in where you're going. Anywhere in the world, from what I understand. You're just picked. Two people. You don't even know the person you're going with. And I've known friends that were sent to, I believe it was Honduras, New Mexico, parts of Africa. The board, some board, just picks you out. And send you to a place. And this precedent seems to show us that's not what Paul did. He said, these people need help. And then it begins to reveal a second part on the side of the missionary. Titus had an earnestness to go help those particular people. What we would say in our missionary Baptist vernacular, he had a burden. I've got to go there. I'm going to keep reading in the, uh, in the NASB because it's just a little clearer. So he went of his own accord. He accepted the appeal. He was very earnest. We have sent along with him the brother whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches. So that tells us something else. Titus goes, and then what? Another brother goes. So again, let, let's, let's go backward. The apostles, Jesus sends them out what? Two by two. That's the pattern, Right? He's not sending them out alone. He's sending them out two by two. When he sent the 70 later on in his ministry, he sent them out two by two. Now, Paul, we're going to find in the book of Acts, he's always going out in groups. Right? First, Paul and Barnabas. Then, Paul and Barnabas can't agree because Barnabas wants to bring his, co- his cousin, John Mark, with him. They don't agree on that. So finally, Paul says, okay, I'm not going with you. I'm going to take Silas with me. You can take John Mark with you. And so then they separate and they go out two by two, right? Here, Titus has a burden to go. And then Paul says, and then I sent somebody else with him. But notice the, um, the quality of that person. Here's what it says in verse 18. We've sent along with him the brother whose fame and the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches. What does that mean? What do you think that means? I think it has a pretty simple meaning. He's some distinguished preacher. Yes. And it's kind of ironic they don't name that person. Mm-hmm. So, so he's in, got an impeccable character. Or mm-hmm. yeah. He's a mature Christian. That's really important. Right? He was known not just at one church but at many churches for his command of the gospel in some sense. So I think we learn a second thing about missionary work. They go out two by two, and they're not young, novice, inexperienced. They're people who are grounded in the gospel. But then we find that's not it. That's not all. There's more to it. Verse 19. And not only this, but he's also been, a, been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work, which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our readiness, taking precaution that, so that no one will discredit, discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. For we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. Verse 22, we have sent with them our brother whom we have often tested and found diligent in many things. Okay, so 
We learned something else in verse 22. What else did we learn? There's a third one that goes. And notice again the emphasis. I have tested him many times and found him diligent. Which is the very quality that he would not let John Mark go with him later in the book of Acts. Is that John Mark evidently fled at a precarious time in their ministry while him and Barnabas stayed. So, this is a pattern of of sending out missionaries. So then, I just want to ask the question, and (laughs) this may come to bite me in the butt later. What do we do when inexperienced young men want to go to the mission field? Okay, so we at least need, the very least, need someone who is experienced to agree to go with them. But I would even say that's not what this precedent is saying, right? I mean, think about, you know, I'm looking at Sister Shelley here in her profession. You know, I do my own taxes, so if I said, applied for her job and said, can I be a level fourth wealth management employee? I do my own taxes. What would you say? <laughs> Let's talk about it, okay? Right? I probably wouldn't even get a consideration with my application. Right? And the reason is simple. It's not that I'm a bad person. It's not that maybe one day I could not do that. But at this moment, I'm not prepared to do that. And here's the template that's laid out right here that all three of these men, Titus, let's go to Titus 1 and see that Paul's instruction to Titus was when you ordain men, here the quality of those men have to be. So we know Titus is mature in the faith. Then we have the other two that it explicitly says they're mature in the faith. And so, to me I see, a, so again, let's just convert to Mormonism for 10 seconds. We're sending out 18 year olds. Like, first of all, that already doesn't relate here. I mean, again, just using a carnal example, that doesn't make sense. Because this is handling, handling American wealth and taxes. This is the eternal gospel. Like, you can send a young man with the best of intentions who ends up condemning large groups of people to hell by just making mistakes. He's not trying to, just like I'm not trying to mishandle anybody's money. But you're dealing with souls here. And so, I think one of the concerns that I have, and that has arisen especially recently when I look at the scope of mission work that at times our people support, it doesn't seem to meet the clear criteria that Paul required. I think in part, and this is, you know, take my opinion for what it is, an opinion. We're so desperate to see good things happen that we just eliminate all standards and go with whatever. We can't do that. If a man has an earnest desire like Titus, the best thing to say is, well, then let's prepare your heart. Let's get you ready to go out there. Somebody have a thought about 
this pattern or mission work or anything that we're talking about here for a moment. Anyone? How would you go about if you had a young man that was just on fire to go do something? It was obvious he wasn't ready, but he was very sure of himself. Dead set, um, how, I mean, you don't want, you don't want to kill that spirit, but at the same time, you know, he, he no. finds a way. How do you, how do you even go about mm-hmm. something like this? Mm-hmm. Why do you make mistakes? I, I, I think it, absolutely. I think it tend, depends somewhat on the gravity of what he's doing. So in this case, um, they were being sent to a place that I would say is above an immature preacher's pay grade. Like Corinth, <laughs> you know, like that's some tough stuff. I'm not saying this is right, although I think there's a scriptural precedent. I think you always speak the truth. Always. Even to a young man who's aspiring. You're not ready. Under no circumstances are you ready right now. I think our um, hesitance to say that is more a product of our soft culture than it is, you know. And so if you're going to be discouraged because a well-intended brother or sister says, hey, you're not ready yet, then you're definitely not prepared for the mission field because you're going to meet a whole lot more resistance than that, right? And so to me, and I'll give you another verse that I discovered this week. Look at 1 Timothy 5.22. I've got this listed in your, your outline here, but it's something important for, I think it's 1 Timothy, yeah, it's 1 Timothy 5.22. Now, I'm not going to get off, I could get tangential here, and I promise I won't. So, in the King James, this is what it says. Now, this is in the midst of the responsibility of elders. This is what Paul is talking about from 17 down to verse 25 right before he's going to warn against false teachers. So, and he's giving lists, okay? That's what he's doing from 17 to 25. It's like a list of all these things. Look at verse 22 in the King James. Here's what it says. Lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be partaker of other men's sins, keep thyself pure. So the way I read these, this, this verse, it seems like, two or possibly even three separate commands. Don't lay your hands on a man suddenly, so we know what that's talking about is ordaining someone. right? The process of ordaining a man, for our deacons that are here, for any uh, elders that are here, point in ordination service, really the only part that is necessary for a, a service is the laying on of hands. Right? And I'm not going to get off on why that's the case. So he says, first of all, if you're an elder, he's talking to Timothy here, He's saying, at one part he says, you need to make elders, right? But now he's saying, but don't do it suddenly or too quickly on somebody. And then it seems like he just moves on to the next part of the list and says, don't be a partaker in another man's sins. So if you see somebody doing something wrong, don't join to them is how it kind of seems. But that's not what it's saying at all, right? 
I've got it here in the NASB, and listen to this because to me it's super clear what he's getting at. He says this, Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily, and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Okay, so this to me is kind of terrifying. So let's say that there's a young man that comes forward for ordination. He's not ready to be ordained. I know he's not ready. But in the spirit of what Brother Danny just brought up, I'm a little afraid to dampen his fire. And so I say, well, okay. And I lay hands on him. What does that verse tell us? I share responsibility for his... So when God judges me in judgment, he's going to bring up things this man did that I, in a sense, certified by doing it too hastily. I did it too quick. Now, I probably shouldn't say this, but that's why I don't go to a lot of ordinations. Like, a lot. Because, like, I don't even feel like I have that high of a bar. But I have a bar. (laughs) Right? And if you want to know where the bar is, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. Like, it's really spelled out. Right there. These are the things that you have to be to read the qualification. And in each definition, I'll even say this, let's define that very broadly. Right? So, one of them is he can't be a man given to anger. Okay, so let's be broad in our interpretation of what being given to anger means. I'm all for that. Like, let's be gracious to one another. But there's a bar. And... This is a caution to me, and I think to every church that looks to ordain somebody. If we're going to ordain deacons, if we're going to ordain men, and send them out for the work of the Lord, God has standards. They're His standards. And if I do it too hastily, for whatever is compelling me to, I'm a share in the responsibility for what that man does. Um, that may be... That's the, that's, this last week or so is the first time I've read that, so I hope that you'll take that and chew on it, and, and if you have a different opinion of it, I'm, I'm certainly willing to hear it. That's how I understand that. So to answer your question directly, Brother Danny, I think you tell them. You know, I think you have to tell them. And then to me what you say is, now let's make a plan to get you ready. And that's where I think the Lord's churches could do a much better job we could collectively come together and say, hey, let's men that desire the office of a bishop, men that desire to be missionaries, men that desire to be evangelists, let's come together, pool our resources together, and set up supplementary institutions to help them. You know, and one of the um, things that I missed in the young ministry is just, having somebody directly teach me. And I can't imagine the amount of hours that I had to, in some ways, waste, you know, scrapping and searching when another man knew it and could have helped me. And, and, and I think, not to get too far off onto this, but the whole picture of mentorship in the New Testament is pretty clear too. Like, we're to have people that teach us directly, Right? And the apostles did, Paul did, 
other men throughout the scriptures. So, to me, I think, in short, as we finish tonight, the same pattern that was used with Jesus and the apostles is the same pattern that the church is to use with missionaries. I see it, at least. And an integral part of that is preparation, but it's also proving of character. Because when I look at, and you can go look for yourself in First Timothy 3 and in Titus 1, Almost all of those qualifications are character qualifications. I'll take a man who has character and is a lot more sparsely educated than a man who has a doctrine in theology but has no character. And that's what the qualifications seem to line out, as much as I understand them. Somebody have a a thought or a comment about any of these things tonight? I think it's a warning when he says, nor take part of the sin of others. He's saying you'll be culpable. So it's a warning. Mm-hmm. And a terrifying one. Yeah. And one that, ironically, Paul... Like when he's writing to these false teachers spread out, they were the product of somebody. Like the church at Colossae had false teachers. The church at Corinth had false teachers. There's all these letters, and, in, and mingled into these letters are these... War- like Galatia... The whole purpose of Galatia is like, you've got some false teachers and I'm going to confront them head on. Where did they come from? Right? And so there's... Mm-hmm. Whoever sent them... Scary, scary stuff in the sense of our responsibility. Anybody else have a thought about any of these things? So we'll read the last... Uh, Last bullet point, and then we'll be done. But I'll say this. The reason why I went this direction with this, we had a, a little bit of time before we got into chapter 2. And secondly, apostles and missionaries are going to be all throughout the book of Acts. And so we've tried to establish what that pattern looks like of sending them out so that when we revisit those over and over, Paul's going to be called in his apostle, and all these missionaries are going to go out. We kind of have a sense of what the biblical expectation is. The information we proved found... Uh, This information will prove foundational as we see the churches spreading throughout Judea and the Gentile world. As we train up missionaries in future generations, it is imperative we use the pattern established in God's Word. The stakes are too high, and deviating from God's express pattern will prove disastrous for us, those being sent, those receiving the Word, and most importantly, the reputation of God throughout the world.